2: Hey, Derek here. Want to know what this week's episode of Motherfucklore is about? Here's a little clue from Patter.
0: The erotic misadventures of Derek O'Shea, take one. His left hand turned her head up toward his. Then his mouth swooped down on hers. This time, he did not hold back. His lips and tongue against her mouth showed her exactly how far her game-playing had pushed him. Rosaline felt dizzy as the fire of his passionate kiss consumed her, and she admitted it. She wanted to burn, to feel him. Her tongue met his intimate embrace. She felt him caress one of her nipples through her thin gown. His fingers made circles, outlining it until it became a hard pebble against his hand. She moaned, her own intense nature rushing to the surface. He made her experience such a fierce wanting. Her hands came out to run along his arms as she pushed herself closer to him, needing more of him, yet not understanding exactly how she could get it. When she felt his hand reach under her skirts to caress the insides of her stocking-clad thighs, a raw shiver of desire coursed through her body. "'Oh, Rosaline, I ache for you!' He took the soft skin of her ear between his teeth and gave it an erotic bite. "'You make me want to nibble every delectable inch of you!' "'Yes, oh yes, Lucian, I want this too!' But she glanced over his shoulder. "'Should you not lock the door first?
2: the Podcast Network. Welcome to Mother Folklore Last Orders. Podcast of words, Irish, Irish words, and words from Ireland. I am Dara Cochet. I'm joined again by a former guest. A guest who is on one of our most popular episodes ever. Hmm. In fact, one of the episodes, and it was so good that right after, there was a, there was a pandemic or something. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately. Uh,
1: the world had heard enough of my voice and they just hibernated now for the last year and a half.
2: Welcome back to Motherfucker, Faltcher, Rash, Roshi McNally.
1: Thank you for having me back, Gromagot.
2: We are so delighted to have you back. Uh, we had so much, so much fun last time talking about TikTok and certain points of Irish mythology and the scalaglists lists and all these things. It was great crack. Uh, but today we're talking something else. Um, since things have closed up, there's been. This is also is TikTok related as well because there's been a one of the, of the hashtags and. And that's been that's been very big during the pandemic has been book talk.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. I myself have gotten roped into it quite often. um okay. I, ac- I accidentally got a little book talk famous purely by accident. Oh. Because of the fancy dude I have that's somewhere in my room that I will not find due to technical difficulties. <laughs> um, but a book embosser. I showed people a book embosser, and I woke up the next day and I had like twenty thousand likes. Wow. So for, for a day I was book talk famous and then I went right back into my little hole for Irish mythology.
2: Good stuff. And what is a book embosser?
1: It's like, um, you know, when you're in a library and I'll usually have like the pages slightly raised. I think I have a, possibly have one book here with it on. Mm. My favourite, genuine one of my favourite books. Oh. It's called, um, oh, sorry, ASMR.
2: <laughs> <laughs> maybe I don't. I love that.
1: Um. Maybe I don't have it. But it basically has my name on it. sitting so in the Library of Rosie McNally and it raised up on the page slightly. Oh, yes. Yeah, so it means that oh. when I lend a book to someone, they have to give it back.
2: It's the, the big thing, I've seen this, but a thing now where, where you lend someone a book, you take a photograph of them holding it.
1: I should have done that.
2: <laughs> and you send it to them. No, it's, it's, a, it's shocking because people... What really gets me is if you lend someone a book and you've lent me this book, which we'll, we'll talk about shortly... Um, if when you lend someone a book, uh, and if they don't like it, they're less likely to give it back because it's on their bookshelf. Oh, I might finish it. They're not going to finish it. I would
1: have thought the they,
2: opposite. But if someone says, "Look, I just—I mean, I read ten pages of this book. I'm just not into it," and it's like, "Whoa, I—I I, I lent it to you. Give it a chance." You know, it's uh, you're you're making a comment to my book taste by uh, giving a book back after you know reading two pages. Up, oh, not gonna, not gonna do this one.
1: Does that mean you're not giving my book back, or are you actually I, going to send it back?
2: <laughs> I am sending it back. You could, you could have your address in the back, and thank you so much. So, the book, basically, the one of the things in book talk uh, that I, as I mentioned, is that there's been a spike in romance novels. I mean, romance novels have been consistently popular for as long as, and for, for as long as novels have been published. And there's a theory that one of the reasons that the rail network is so bad in Ireland is that. Um, certain elements in the church were worried that people bought certain kinds of books in train stations.
1: That's so, that's really funny, too, because most books, uh, like their Mills and Booms and your Harlequins and your Heartfires, most mm-hmm. of them are actually published to be sold in places of transit. So you're talking train stations, airports, newsagents, because mm-hmm. they're very small books that you'd read on a journey. Of course, the most famous person we all know who reads romance novels on trains being Catherine from Cockamillish. So. <laughs> she's the true. She's the true fall of the Irish railway.
2: And look, very much so. The idea is, I Mia. Mean, yeah, she's she. she doesn't. Have, she has a small amount of time to read her book, and you know she's not interested in being interrupted with small talk, chat. You know, she wants to find out. You know if um, Raven-haired Claudia does uh, end up with a barrel-chested um, Hans.
1: She never does. That's asthmatics. They just keep doing this to us. They keep taking our precious time away to read our romance
2: novels. <laughs> and this is the thing: there's, um like a lot of obviously the, the rail network was destroyed during the War of Independence and the Civil War, particularly in around your part of the country. And when people thought we're, we're talking about rebuilding, it's like, well, well, what kind of bookshops are there going to be in this in this train station? I mean, why are we just have small little train stations? And you know, we, you know, what what kind of carry on goes on in these places? And you know, it's small minded and but it, it was it's, it's interesting that romance novels were a part of that discussion in Charles, in John Charles McQuaid's own letters. it's really you can see it right there. but anyway, so this is the thing, romance novels. Uh, it's, it's, it's it's several romance novels have really spiked there was there was an interest when Kindles first became a thing, two books started doing very well one of which was the Fifty Shades of Grey series and the idea is that people felt they are happy, com- com- comfortable reading these and trains and stuff without people seeing the, the outside of the book. Weirdly, one of the other Kindle hits was uh, Mein Kampf. Oh God. Yeah, two, two very People's, different
1: ends of the spectrum.
2: People saying, saying, well, why was Mein Kampf doing so well? I was like, oh, it's Kindles.
1: <laughs> I suppose it's the same sort of thing. It's not one of those books you want to be caught reading out in public.
2: Yeah, very much so. so.
1: Fifty Shades
2: of Grey, Nazi propaganda. <laughs> Very much. Yeah, you'd be, You know, I, I think, I mean, if people realise that it could be Nazi that, propaganda, people say, yeah, you absolutely should just be reading Smut instead. So there's a few interesting things. We've talked before on this podcast about how, how Ireland and Irishness is represented in computer games, in fantasy literature and role-playing, in the romantic comedies, and it's in certain other formats. And I wanted to talk about this idea of how Ireland is represented in the world of romance novels, and you very kindly with, brought a huge amount of expertise to bear on the subject matter, <laughs> which I'm looking forward to prying from now. So, um, first of all, maybe um, there's a lot of people who say that there's a distinction between what the classic romance novel versus what is sometimes called we'll called women's literature or chick or things like that. Um, I I'm not sure if you if you like or dislike the term chicklet, but it is out there. I find
1: that I find that so funny. Like I call this. Um, my family will come in and they're like, "What's that in your shelves?" I go, "Oh, I'm just adding to my erotica collection. Keeps them out <laughs> of my room." Um,
0: yeah.
1: Chicklet, bodice ripper. There's so many names to them. Um, women's books is obviously a great stereotype to them too. But yeah, uh, mm. Chicklet's funny. I like Chicklet. The funnier the name, the better. I think.
2: Yeah, it's it's it's. I, I guess it's it, it's one of these things. But if you were going to say. Di- Come up with a definition of what it is, romance novel. You know, particularly, for, or as you would say, your lit from your literary erotica collection. <laughs> What's um, what are the defining characteristics? Is it um, that is the size? Is it that the subject matter? Is it certain? It, or is it that, that there's certain series? Is, or
1: I genuinely think that it's really determined to just the plot points in as well. Obviously, you have your typical atypical sort of oil painting covers. For, yes. your, for your chicklets and um, but I think it's categorized more so by just the plots of these books like there's always you'll always tell on the back because it'll always have two paragraphs first in the point of view of the female lead and uh, the second in the point of view of the male lead and I think that's a good giveaway to these sort of romance books um
2: yeah that's that, that's a very good point because so this this the book one of the books we're going to be talking about and we you've, you've mentioned this a few others um Midnight Heat by Mary Burkhardt
1: Yes, oh my god, I love this book. I've read all so, of Mary Burghud's books, and every single one of them, absolutely insane.
2: So if you want to read the the female perspective, and I'll read the male perspective from the back cover.
1: Oh yes. Um, I feel a particular kinship because myself and the main character have a very similar name. But <laughs> <laughs> very different people, very similar name. That's my um, narcissism coming out. So, Moonlit Ride. Outraged by the poverty and injustice she saw all around her, lovely Rosaline O'Rahilly rode out every night to rob any Englishman foolish enough to travel the roads of Irish Kinsale after dusk. The brave beauty wanted nothing more to do with the English landlords until the evening she met the handsome Duke of Montrose. The fire of promise in his dark eyes and that mastery in his strong, lean hands filled her with the heat she yearned to satisfy, even if it meant risking her freedom. Dot, dot, dot.
2: Dot, dot, dot. ...and from the Duke's perspective, a desire. Lucian sensed danger in the road ahead, as his carriage was approached by a caped figure on horseback. But one glimpse of this mysterious highwayman revealed a tantalising surprise. She had the creamy skin and soft curves of a beautiful woman. <laughs> he vowed to repay this alluring thief with, ten- with a tender of his own, a few kisses, slow seduction, whatever it might take to uncover her identity. And discovered the womanly secrets, her heavenly pr- body promised to deliver. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's gold!
1: And it's funny because when you read the book, um, he only ever engages with the the masked vigilante. I think is it once or twice, and then becomes abs- completely obsessed with a woman that he doesn't have any association. He thinks at least to the ha- masked highwayman. So I find the back mm. to be a bit misleading, but also um, pinnacle in why I choose my books. Also because mm. of the covers
2: very much so this cover uh like has yes a um a fella like who's who's a badly made shirt
1: yeah badly she
2: made to... shirt ripped out and he seems to whis- whispering something in a young one's ear and she's either asleep or or
1: asleep. having the crack
2: she's, no, she's
1: unconscious he's pulling her out of what looks like a pond
2: yes yeah, so that's right she is in a pond and then if you look in the background it's at like the thatch cottage and some, a lot of greenery suggesting we might be in Ireland.
1: Possibly that's a that's a huge factor in these books. Whenever there's any talk of Ireland, there's always going to be the mention of the color green. Constantly, I recently just finished today a book called Irish Linen, and she's given a cloak that's green. And I think I may be able to pull up the specific quote on the the green cloak.
2: Excellent. But it
1: it was it was heavy and well made with a hood, a shade green darker than the rolling hills of her homeland like it's never just green it's irish green
2: of course i mean yeah like so being, waking up after a feet of pints you know the fair face is as green as ireland or something but it's always has to be tied into nationality some way so you've we've read a lot of romance novels and i mean I, what i was thinking is that are romance novels set in ireland to generally set in a specific point in history i mean are, are we are we looking at you know the um the arms crisis, or possibly the, um, or possibly you know, nineteen oh four, Bloomsday time series. Are, are we are we looking at something a very specific point in history that is most romantic?
1: Well, I will say that there are definitely books like that that exist that are based in such as the Arab's Crisis, 1916, maybe even the Troubles. Look at Friends Across the Barricades. Um, mm. I don't read those ones because I only read trash. <laughs>
2: um,
1: but I find that they tend, most. I only read historical fiction and sci-fi fiction because for some reason, anything based in the modern day, I find a little bit too unrealistic. But um, mm. they all do tend to be based in the 18th or 19th century the 18th century with a huge amount of plantations in the U- in Ireland at the time and um, with a lot more English landowners and the 19th century with the only event that really we think about when it comes to 19th century Ireland and that is the Great Hunger on mm. Um But that's only when there's a main character In in an Irish main character in these books. Whenever an Irish character does exist as a side character, they're nine times out of ten going to be in the New World or the colonies, and they come in three types if they're not a main character. Okay. So the three types are the chatty and clever Irish servant girl. Oh, yes. So a lot of that has more relations to... You know, a lot of young Irish girls were immigrated over to the US and Canada, I believe. And I found this out recently. A lot of workhouses were set up with schemes that would send a lot of teenage girls from 14 to 18 to become domestic workers in Canada and such. And so obviously they're always going to play a very vital role as the servant girl. The other is the young, boisterous Irish lads. And they always come in groups. There's never just one of them. They're always usually in groups of two or three. And they've come from the ireland to find riches in the new world and they do hard work and they never complain and they're always great crack to be around but mm. they, they don't get romantic interests because they're young sort of whippet scrappy wee lads and then the third of course being our favorite stereotype the drunk man down at the pub
2: oh yes so three three fine characters to be having, having around
1: yeah in ireland you cut the three genders there is
2: <laughs> servant, <laughs> girl, servant girl
1: witty man drunk
2: God, that's shocking. That's <laughs> it's it's. I suppose this is interesting. You think that, that there's that that certain nationalities fit certain uh, fit certain characteristics in the in the storytelling and and often one of the things for me that, that about romance novels. I think about this now when when say a certain writer every year. Oh, there's a new book by this writer coming out, or and it's often romance novelists have a high output.
1: Oh, there's, in fact,
2: yeah. in, looking at Ireland, there's a uh, uh, there's a, a writer in Ballymena uh, called Lynn Graham who has written, over a 30-year period, 100 novels for Mills and Boone.
1: God, that's actually amazing. It's like mm. four... That's a book every four months. Mm. <laughs> so, so <what> else? <laughs> I was going to say, what else is there to do in Ballymena? But... <laughs>
2: Well, yeah, sure, <laughs> sure yes. Yeah, it's well, Balbal. Well, well, I mean, there's a a beautiful part of the country, you know. And I suppose it's uh, I, <laughs> it is. But it's I, I just find it very interesting the idea that I just think like how um, how long it takes to write one book, and then it's it's impressive output to have to be able to produce that much popular stuff.
1: Yeah, and I've never read her books, but I find that romance novels, they're such fun reads. So you can imagine she probably had a lot of fun writing them out that she didn't really, not exactly need a break, but she could fire it out so quickly because mm. these books are so fun. And just imagining now that, you know, your most romance novels are based in London or New York or
2: mm. the,
1: the romance capital of Ireland, Malamina.
2: yeah absolutely it's a it is funny that is balmyn the most romantic part town in ireland now it's i mean certainly um it has a claim
1: yeah it was either that or dingle from um leap year
2: oh yes when they all landed in tingle famously that's where you go when you've been diverted from from wales
1: yeah
2: everyone knows but it's um roshan when did you get into romance novels (sighs)
1: Well, I real. Do you know what? I was only thinking of this the last day and I was like, oh, it probably happened when I lived in Australia. But the reality is it was when I read Twilight. <laughs> like most teenage girls, mm-hmm. um, Twilight was most people's introduction to romance novels. And Twilight's a perfect example of gothic literature. And mm-hmm. I kind of stopped reading for a while and then I moved to Australia with my sister in 2019 and I wanted mm-hmm. to read something, but I didn't want to read anything I could be too committed to that I would have to bring back to Ireland. And there yeah. was a, secondhand bookshop near where I lived and I went into this little room to the back of it and I wish I was joking, it was floor to ceiling all the entire room romance novels. So I picked three of the worst covers I could find and of those books, I still only have the one that is now sellotaped together with an old um, Starbucks bag because it was falling apart and Hmm. the others are who knows where. I think I left a note in one of them being like, this is a terrible read, please enjoy. But (laughs) they were... They were such fun books to read because I didn't have to think when I was reading them. I could just sit mm-hmm. down, read it, enjoy it, put it down, never think of it again. And at the start of COVID, and I remember, it was I think it was December time in COVID, and I suggested to my friends that for Christmas, we do this thing, and we've been doing it every year since, called Merry um, Romancemas or Triple Xmas, where we mm. find each other the most, worst romance novels we can find and then send to each other like a secret Santa thing. Well, that's a great idea. So... I was looking for books and I brought my friend Neil to Universal Books in Letterkenny. And it's all great secondhand books and stuff. And I found this one called um, Highland Ecstasy. And oh. I, I bought it for him. And I said to him, you read this. And he's like, God, no. And I so I took it home and I read it and I became absolutely obsessed. I read it in a day. And the next day I was like, OK, I need to find more of these books.
2: Highland Ecstasy. Highland okay,
1: Ecstasy.
2: T- t- tell me a little bit about Highland Ecstasy.
1: Island Ecstasy is about a woman who inherits a, Scot- a castle in Scotland that is apparently haunted by the old lord, who, or not old lord, the previous owner, who killed himself um, as vengeance against the English. Turns out didn't kill himself. He's pretending to be a ghost in the castle to try scare her out. Her name is Myrtle. Myrtle's not having any of it. He wants her out because she's English. And one of these books, you'll find, if there's a main character that is not English they're usually going to reject their nationality towards the end it's, it's amazing
2: but oh my that, god that that's oh, a, so if the, if the if the fiery uh if the fiery heroine isn't actually from england she will find a way to become english
1: or no vice versa so the fiery heroine is english but she falls in love with the best examples are like the book you read she hmm. um the duke of montrose basically rejects his Englishness. He much much prefers Ireland. Other books I've read with a lot of Native Americans, the women reject their previous white heritage to join these Native American tribes and embrace them oh. more so. And with these ones, with are based in Scotland, they usually reject their the English tyranny that has ravaged the lands of Scotland and tend to side with their Scottish counterparts. Those are just some yeah. examples. And there's this interesting theme of kind of rejection of identity and like for some cases, and it's a horrible way to phrase it. It's like um rejecting what's considered civilised culture for one Mm. that's a lot more endearing and the one that's a lot more open and embraces them a lot more Um, and you see that you see that with Myrtle you see that with Um, you see that with Rosaline in Midnight Heat and you see it in the previous book I just have a stack of them sitting here Um, that's actually about Rosaline's mother who's English and her father who um, Taggart his name is and Taggart O'Rahilly who's Irish and she decides that actually I much prefer Ireland just um, to be with my Irish husband
2: Can you show me that book again because it looks like it's Margie Marcy who's kissing that girl on the neck Oh my god it is
1: Yeah Margie Marcy makes a couple of covers here I also have um Oh god! I knocked a whole stack over of them earlier on my floor. Where is the? Where do you go? Oh no! I have them here. I have um, Freddie Mercury, too, in front of this one.
2: God, you're not joking. Yeah, the the moustache and well, Jessica Wolf wrote that one. And yeah. yeah, he's he's basically just wearing a jeans without a shirt, and she's yeah. wearing a kind of a um, Morticia Adams kind of red and red nighty.
1: And what you can't see is that it's the only cover I have. This is my least favourite cover, but it's the only cover that has like a shiny metallic cover on it.
2: Oh, yeah, it does. Very swish.
1: To respe- to reflect the blue skies of either Ireland or Wyoming. I haven't read this one yet, so I'll find out. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Highland Ecstasy's plot. I just love the plot. I, I have to go back to it because it's just so insane. So she thinks the place is haunted. She doesn't care. She wants to do the castle up and help the clan, which is the under the under what's his name? Um, Ian Sinclair, and he finds out that she's reading his diary and his raunchy pirate novels from his private library. So he sneaks into her room to try and get them back, and he's caught wearing this what can only be described as a Phantom of the Opera getup. He's got a powdered wig on, a mask, but he's also described as being like six foot two and built like a built like a brick wall. So mm-hmm. she's in the bath; she starts screaming. He then has to pretend they they call him Eurisk and the. Angus, who's like the maintenance man of the building, is like, oh, that's just yours He's not all there. He was beaten up as a child by English soldiers. So that's why he has the mind of a, of a young boy. So she then re- thinks that this giant man is just a bit slow. And that goes on for a couple of chapters until I think there's murder attempt on her life number th- two or three. I can't remember. And he's so enraged by this another murder attempt that he picks her up and he's cursing in latin and gaelic and english and french and he throws her into her room and then she's like someone who's not all there doesn't speak perfect latin or french or gaelic mm-hmm. what's going on here and then angus has to come in and be like he's had brain leaks he's back to normal and then even for the rest of the book he just has to pretend to keep wearing the mask due to pox scars so he won't recognize her until i think people i want to spoil the entire book i'll stop there but it is the wildest book i've read in my life and i actually had to buy two copies of it
3: because
1: my original copy is falling apart and has all these sticky tabs in it that i've marked for um sexy scenes quote unquote bizarre moments and murder attempts so i think there's about four or five murder attempts in this book but it is wild
2: the copy you lent me had uh, like orange tags for sexy scenes, green tags for bits of Irish language, blue tags for kind of exciting kind of dialogue. And it was uh, it was interesting to see this was yes. That's that someone, I'm not sure how if Mary Burkhart spent a lot of time in Ireland before writing this or how much research was involved, but she used the cutie" as cutie, as a term of endearment.
1: Yeah, I saw that. That happens a lot in the previous book as well. And I was like... I don't think I've ever heard that as a term of endearment.
2: No. Um, I've, heard, I've heard people describing babies as clutchy, yeah, but maybe I haven't. But in terms of saying clutch as a noun, yeah, you know, or a proper noun, even in fact,
1: she probably had an Irish di- Irish Anglo um, diction- Irish dictionary in front of her and just flicked through like a word for darling. Oh, that'll do. Um, but it's funny because even though a lot of these books, whenever there is a main protagonist, there's hmm. no Irish ever spoken in them. Like, and I find that really unrealistic, be- not that these books are, but for example, I just finished reading Irish Linen and it's based, it begins in the year 1847 on a coffin ship on its way to Philadelphia, while mm. a girl named Meghan McBride watches her father be thrown overboard because he died in the most Irish way possible. And throughout the book... The only time there's ever mentions of any Irish, it's not between the girl having a conversation with other Irish people on the ship, because let's face it, a lot of people going over from Ireland to America would have only spoken Irish. Yeah. Um, but there's no mention of that anywhere. There's also no mention of any names with traditional Irish spellings. Like there's a Bridget and a Mary and you know your typical sort of Irish names, but you'd never find like a like a Fanula or a Dottaku or a Giermid, you'd always just find like your Marys, and your Bridgets, your Chans and your Johns, or Rafferty. That's the name of the villain in this. But <laughs> Irish. His,
2: name, his name's Rafferty.
1: His name's Rafferty. A lot of surnames as first names I've noticed in these books. Mm.
2: Yeah, a, that's 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 an interesting yeah. American tradition. I think. But, it's, an, it's an American tradition borrowed from Scotland, I'm told.
1: Yeah, and again, the only time the any Irish word, the only Irish word mentioned in this entire book is Sasseny.
2: Of course, that's one oh. that that's that gets a lot of attention now because it's been made very, very popular by Outlander. Oh yeah. And I'm not sure if Outlander would, would be fully. Yeah, I think Outlander would be a more historical novel rather than a romance novel, even though it has significant romance elements. I
1: would. I don't know. I've already seen. I've never actually read it. Um, but I have seen a few episodes, and I would classify it as a romance novel just because it's such a prevalent theme in the books that I has to it has to be considered then. Um. <clears throat> It's a bit like um, I have the novelization of the Mummy in front of me, and I think it reads the, the movie's not a romance novel, and it is my favorite movie of all time. But the book, the novelization by um, Max Max Allen Collins, it reads like a romance novel. So I would categorize this as a romance novel.
2: The novelization of the Mummy.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's the one. That, hey, what did you go describe it? One of the best book. I mean, the, 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 yes, we know the Mummy is a wonderful film.
1: It's incredible. I have my little Funko Pops here of uh, Rick O'Connell and Evie Car- Carahan, whatever her name is. But I would yeah. never classify that as a romance film, but I'd classify the novelisation as a romance novel because it really reads like one.
2: This, yeah, the, the idea of, no, of a novelisation of a screenplay actually switching genres is shows a, a certain amount of literary daring.
1: Hmm, and it's hard <laughs> to do. Like, it's not a great book, but it's all right. But and that was very popular a few years ago you'd always see in let's say like the young adult section there'd be like the novelization of a recent show or you used to get the novelization of live action Disney movies that was very popular for children Hmm. but I think it's much harder to do for adult literature because adults are a lot more critical of comparing one media to another it's like the vice versa when you have a book turned into a film like they're two very different types of media
2: yeah no, I I remember just even broaching the the topic of me doing a novelization of Fatal Deviation and just the kind of the criticism that caught that like this wasn't a worthwhile project to be doing. Can you imagine? Yeah. But I think the the idea I mean we we accept that yes that um we accept that the plays can become films, films can become musicals. Uh books can become films and stage plays and all these up, go all the way around and but somehow, yes, it seems to be that a film can, sorry, a text can go down the the chain in, in adaptations, but it can't go up the chain. So you, you can't make an, an epic poem based on, yeah, you can't make an opera based on a novel because opera is above novels.
1: Yeah.
3: Fad Camp is a comedy podcast about the ridiculousness of fad diets and diet culture. Hosted by me, Grace Mulvey.
0: And me, Connor Dowling. If you have a body of any kind, chances are you've crossed paths with at least one of the bizarre diet trends we cover in our show.
3: And between me and Connor, we have done nearly every fad diet there is.
0: Juice cleansing. Fasting. The potato diet.
3: Which is actually a real diet, by the way, and we don't recommend it.
0: So join us as we try to make sense of the madness that is diet culture.
3: Find Fad Camp everywhere you get your podcasts and make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Fad Camp Podcast.
2: So, Russian. We think of romance novels. There's um, often kidnapping, and you know, and uh, and confrontational situations between lovers, and situ- things like that. And and how does it all fit in with modern values? And you know, all, all that. This the, I mean, well, our kidna is kidnapping romantic. Oh, no. absolutely
1: no, absolutely not. But in a book. Um, mm. I saw this girl on Twitter on book on TikTok on BookTok. She, her name's at Virgo Reader, and she goes, "What's something you love in a romance novel and hate in real life?" And people had really good points. My favorite would be usually men. Um mm. but people like <laughs> they they love the. Some people are like, "I love the idea of someone being very confrontational." and hating it if somebody else might touch the person they're interested in and get into a physical fight over it. And they love that in a romance novel. If someone tried that in real life, I would just leave. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's just the way it's portrayed, because through the... And do you know what? I think it's because when it's written by a woman, it's a lot more ideal, because it's kind of written in a very romantic way. But when you see that in real life, it's usually between two men. And you're like, I'm not into this. I'm going to leave. Yeah, I can on, see that. Uh, yeah, block on Facebook. Um, but you see a lot of those in these books. And so you see these sort of absolutely insane plot points that you're like, how the hell is this romantic? But then you read it and you're like, oh, I kind of get it. Don't want it happening to me, but I kind of get it. Like I have one in front of me about a Viking who purchases a slave from Egypt. I have another one about a woman sold into the slave trade in China in the early 20th century and she's known as the white lotus not romantic at all and there's so Uh, much arranged marriage ones as well does not work but in a a book
2: in a book and this is the thing arranged marriages i'm thinking one of the big breakthroughs in book talk was a science fiction romance where barbarians were on an ice planet
1: um ice planet barbarians by ruby Dixon. you mean the the literary masterpiece i've read four books of
2: four out of a series of 22 four out of,
1: uh, of 22
2: and uh, obviously obviously this is the serious subject matter needs 22 books to be fully you know explored but basically it's these it seems there's an intergalactic sex trafficking ring or something
1: so what happens is these women it begins with georgie and you can't see this but when i talk with my hands getting into mm-hmm. it so because of Georgie, Georgie's kidnapped by aliens and she's brought into a chamber prison with a load of other women. They're all 22, they're all fit, they're all healthy looking, and but six girls are already in pods and they're basically picking up extra cargo as they go along. So they're stuck in this alien bay and I will say the books aren't for, there are mentions of SA and a lot of very traumatic themes in these books. So in the first mm-hmm. one, I would skip. And then maybe yeah. start in the second. But basically, they are about to crash. So the aliens leave their cargo on this ice planet they call Not Hoth because it's all covered in snow, much like I don't know. I've never seen Star it's, Wars, it's, but it's like it's Hoth. not Hoth. <laughs> it's not Hoth.
2: Okay, um, so not Hoth.
1: Yeah, like the Hoth, like the planet in Star Wars. <laughs> so. Well. One of them goes out looking for food or civilization and she comes across a giant blue man who's about six foot something blue, rippling muscles, horns and purring. And the whole point of the book is that these women get rescued by these ice planet barbarians because they're basically buff blue Neanderthals. They're like if the characters in Avatar... Um, went to the gym six days a week or were being cast in Love Island the next season. So mm. they're all incredibly buff and they all need mates. And it just so happens there's enough females they can mate with that will suit all of the straight males or the single males, sorry, within mm. the tribe. And 22 books of the series, they are insane. They shouldn't work, but they do. And I've read mm. four of them. They can be incredibly graphic though, and it'll just come out of nowhere. And it's like reading, um... God, I don't I can't even, I've never actually compared it to because suddenly they'll be going for like a walk through the woods and decide, ah, here's the perfect place to do the horizontal monster rash. Let's write six pages of that <laughs> and then continue on as normal. And it is, oh, uh, it is the weirdest book. But Book Talk, as in, well, a girl named Emma, she started off doing the TikTok on it. And if you go look it up now, it has. Hundreds of thousands of likes collectively, and the books themselves are only three euro each. Uh, there's twenty two mm. books in a series, so Ruby Dixon has sold I don't know how many copies she sold. I have looked, but if you base that just on engagements on TikTok and just how cheap the books actually are, yeah, like she, and they were published in twenty sixteen. She's probably made millions since then, all because some girl on TikTok was like, "This is a really weird book I read, but I loved it, and you should read it too."
2: This is the fu- this is the funny thing, and I think that it's it would. There was uh, I was listening to the um, uh, in case you missed it or uh, podcast through Slate and they were discussing the idea of book talk and they compared how the Song of Achilles got a certain bump from winning the Orange Prize a few years Mm. ago, uh, but the bump commercial bump in sales it got from Book Talk was significantly higher, and that actually Book Talk is something that book bookshops have to actually find a way to incorporate or predict or work around because this is actually it seems to me a a a better the 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 format social media format most suited to actually getting getting book recommendations out
1: oh absolutely like from what i see a lot of people recommend books in a group so like if you like enemy to lovers here are some great books you could read if you Mm. like friends to lovers to enemies here's some other books you could read if you like fate if you like Uh, mythology they categorise them and I think because most up until a few weeks ago you could only film up to a minute and I think that's enough for recommending books because people don't want to be having a 10 minute spiel on why you should read a book it should just be like here's a really good book this is what it's about you should give it a read and that's all people need and like, I've seen shops across the States are setting up tables being like popular book talk books and mm-hmm. books like books by Sarah J Maas and Madeline Miller, like you mentioned and Ruby Dixon and Julia Quinn, especially since Bridgerton mm-hmm. came out, have mm-hmm. hu- become hugely popular thanks to book talk.
2: You know, earlier on this year, Jean and I actually discussed romance novels, specifically the series Bridgerton. Here's a little clip that you record for supporters on Patreon. So, gara did you watch Bridgerton?
3: Did I watch? (laughs) Yes, I did. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. I enjoyed it so much. Not so much for the plot, much like a lot of people didn't enjoy it for the plot. But it was great crack. I enjoyed the costuming. I enjoyed the ridiculousness. I enjoyed the writing. It was great. I had a fun time watching it.
2: It was a fierce, fierce Randy show altogether.
3: I know like there's there comes a point where you're like, I hope nobody comes into the room in the middle of this because, I mean, it's it's porn on the telly and Mm -hmm. I kind of I just my boyfriend was not in the room with me. He was in the playing video games and I just kind of like yelled at him and I was like, I'm not watching porn, just so you know. And he was like, what? (laughs) And I was like, (laughs) not that there's anything wrong because I'm sex positive, but I'm not watching porn, (laughs) it's Netflix. (laughs) Um, but yeah, I watched it, and it seems to me that so did everybody else because it's like Netflix's most popular show or something of that description.
2: It's the funny thing, and obviously it dropped at Christmas time. And a lot of people, typically the reason people watch films at Christmas isn't because Christmas is inherently cinematic. It's just that back in the old days in TV stations, they gave everyone the day off and they just put a a bunch of old films on so that they wouldn't have to have people on. So whereas but now I think now that people have a different relationship with television, Netflix are obviously seeing this as a way to launch a brand new show. And it got a lot of interest. But one of the things is yes, *The Bridgerton* is based on a series of, of romance novels, and the first one, from a series. But then it's it's historical, and yet, and it's historical to a point, and it's set in a Jane Austeny world, Restorationy world, and it raises a number of issues in that. Some there are modern sensibilities in some aspects, and not in others, and some people say, yeah. well uh have, have Shonda and the author and all the other people involved, have they decided, yes, let's be in a world where racism is mostly resolved, but not the other stuff. So we can still choose to fight yesterday's battles and some social issues, but not in others.
3: Yeah. And I've seen those those debates happening, like particularly around like the racism seems to be somewhat gone. They acknowledge it in like one episode, um, sort of vaguely. And then they... The misogyny is not gone. The gender roles aren't gone. You know, Mm. Um, whatever. I don't care. (laughs) And maybe that's coming from a perception of our point of privilege. But like, I'm not watching it for social commentary. That's for sure. I'm watching it because it was quite rightly described to me as gossip girl, but make it Jane Austen. And like, Mm. uh, sign me the fuck up because the first episode, (laughs) in the first maybe 10 minutes, they have a string quartet version of Thank You Next. And I was like, where does this need to go into my veins? That's where (laughs) this is great. I love this. This is excellent television. I loved it so much. It was wonderful. And like, I think it it is, it's good to have like, because like if you're to be like historically accurate, you know, you, you cut a whole cohort of people out of, Uh, possibility to like cast them right if you're just going to be talking about boring white stuffy people in Mayfair then you can only have the boring white stuffy people and let me tell you there was a lot of those people but like there wasn't just those people and you know it was a lot of fun it was a great uh, show I did I did find that um, if we were to take social commentary of it it's that the necessity for sex education for women um, has -hmm. never been more pertinent than in Bridgerton. Um yes, <laughs> yeah. We, the, the girls, the ladies of Mayfair, need adequate sex-positive sexing for uh, sex education, um, and so more, yeah, I hope more they get comfortable that.
2: supporting garments. God, they're they're really uncomfortable.
3: No, hey, listen, as a woman who's very into sewing and creating garments, let me tell you, mm. the only uncomfortable corset is a poorly made corset, okay? So all of these like images of corsets where they're like really uncomfortable, that's some BS. If you get a well-made corset, that shouldn't be uncomfortable. Otherwise, it doesn't fit you properly. Waist training corsets, I don't want to talk about those, okay? I have a lot of feelings about those. This took a, dr- this took a turn, didn't it? Um, <laughs> but... I, yeah, if they're uncomfortable, it's because they don't fit properly. I appreciate that the ones in Bridgerton were very much like, he, the the goal was to be able to rest a cereal bowl on your cleavage, which, listen, if you can do that, that sounds like a, a fun time. But um, maybe maybe that's not fully how, I don't know, maybe that's not fully how it happened. I don't know.
2: And that was me encouraging doing the Patreon bonus content, which all those our bonus episodes will be available to Headstuff plus subscribers after Motherfucker wraps up. So please do consider supporting a wonderful podcast network. I, I, I meant to mention Bridgerton because that, that seemed to have changed the conversation a little bit about about romance novels, in that if, I suppose... Like, last Christmas when they just dropped all that Bridgerton and people... There was a huge amount of interest. But then there was a level of analysis, which maybe the text was, wasn't actually asking for. Oh, yeah. I mean... The idea is yes, they've um, maybe because generally speaking, a romance novel series ten has, has hasn't been given the idea that the Shonda Rhymes treatment before, you know, someone who has been who has been associated with you know, as well as kind of um, gloriously entertaining, ridiculous shows, but also things shows that have dealt with you know um, issues like representation and and. And on serious topics as well. So it's the idea that suddenly people are saying, "Well, what are the ethics of you know colorblind casting, and what are what are the issues here, and why why are you making, why are you taking a modern position on this topic but not that topic?" And it's missing what the actual story was really about, which was about doing sex.
1: Yeah, <laughs> like just all it needs been a romance, but it's far it has for, for far too much critical thinking on what is essentially just. I'm not going to say a nice romantic story due to some of the themes that we see mm-hmm. in the first series of Bridgerton, but it's too much thinking on just an interesting outlook, another interesting um, structure of a romance novel. And especially then we see the same sort of backlash that you might get for like the casting of The Little Mermaid. They've recently cast um, Halle. I don't think it's not Halle Berry, not um, your one from Monsters. It's. um. A young singer and she's just a black woman. And there's a mm-hmm. huge amount of backlash for that because Ariel's not a black girl, Ariel's a white girl. But again, it's all fiction. And Ariel's a fish.
2: A Danish fish. <laughs>
1: a Danish fish. And I think people are just getting slightly too emotionally involved. Um, when it comes to romance novels because things that are written in books, like we mentioned earlier, they're not going to be the exact same on television. So there's nothing wrong with having a bit of blind colour casting with these sort of novels. And it doesn't deserve the sort of critical thinking people think it does because it's just a story. It doesn't really matter who should be playing who because when you're reading it on the book as well, unless they state otherwise, you're not going to know what they look like. That's a whole different tangent. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. yeah, it is the thing. And, and we know that like that, that often with great films have made significant changes to the books they've been adapted from they've cut out entire you know um chapters and chapters and they've you know jettisoned un- characters that no one was interested in so it's it's all part of the thing is there a, a romance novel series you think would be suitable for uh another netflix production
1: um, i'm just saying um Highland Ecstasy, absolutely perfection. Um, but do you know there's actually one book series, and I was only thinking this purely because of the po- how popular Gossip Girl was. Gossip Girl was adapted from books. So oh. uh yeah, Gossip Girl series was adapted from books, so was the vampire diaries, but they were from books. Most pop most of the most popular teen series are come from what is essentially nine times out of ten a romance novel directed at young girls. And if I could have any romance novel sort of series turned into a TV show I Choose the Lux by Anna Godbrisson it's not very popular it's basically Gossip Girl in the year 1899 High Society New York oh. and if I can have any series put into this big screen it would be that it's got very very much Bridgerton vibes
2: that's that. That's, I think a lot of people will, who are listening will definitely want to look up that yeah. so you mentioned there before that say a um, you know a, a fiery English heroine or or American heroine falls in love and finds a community which would ordinarily be using a minority language. Yeah. And how either these, these minority languages are not represented at all or sprinkled in from your own knowledge of Irish. And so you, um, you may have noticed say that, as we said in Midnight Heat, a, a handful of Irish words just used for, 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 for flavoring. And yeah. is, is, is this just a, a general pattern is, is, is this, is this something that could be done better, should be done better, would actually improve the books if it was done better, would?
1: (laughs) I think think yes and no, because the find Mm. that if... I think a lot more thought should be going into things like when it comes to... I'll say Irish romances as an example, because if you put more thought into it, there's going to be a lot more heart into it. There's going to be a lot more engagement with other readers. Um, But also, things like these are not written to be... um, they're not written to win prizes. So I think they yeah. get a pass sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> but they make, but it actually um, makes... But th-
2: just so for our listeners, things like this, when Roshan was saying that, she was holding up a copy of Irish Linen by...
1: It's by um, Candace McCarthy. She has a little note at the back as well. And I thought... I'll read the note to you because I actually thought it was so interesting that she included this as an author's note. And with a name like McCarthy, I'm going to assume she has Irish or Scottish lineage. And the mm. plot of the book... Is based like I said during the famine. An Irish girl moves to New York. Not New York. She moves to Delaware to f- meet her engaged husband, who's a father, who's a hus- friend of her father. Mutter- mm. Getting jumbled now. Um, but she wrote most of the Irish immigrants who came to America during the Great Famine entered the states in New York or Boston. Only a fortunate few managed to arrive directly in Philadelphia. And uh, the Irish in Philadelphia were the lucky ones for their opportunities for employment and were greater. While many households were advertised they wanted to hire Protestants only, it was the fact that Catholic Irish women were in demand as domestics. But life of the Irish immigrant was different in New York and other cities, where he, fa- where they faced prejudice, shop windows, and other signs of employment holding signs saying, Nina, no Irish need apply. And then it also, I won't go read the whole thing, but then it compares how the female lead, uh, Megan, her... Um, life in America is much more benef- much more positive than the ma- the male antagonist, um, Rafferty, because they both have very different experiences when they arrive, and it's mostly due to their age, and it's also due to how they engage in the community around them. And I thought mm-hmm. that was really interesting for her to throw in, because like you read it as a bit of um, a bit of smut, really, and yeah. then you get to these notes and you realize like they do put a lot of thinking into this, and these books so- as. They are bodice rippers, but there's a lot of heart written into them as well. There's a lot of plot development, character development. Um, There's a lot of very interesting conversations that go on. And nine times out of ten, the women in them are very self-sufficient. And the Mm -hmm. men in them love them for that as well. And why I think they get a bad rep because people just associate them with sex books, where really they're books about romance that leads to sex, just a factor in them. And... Feminist literature, and I'll stand by that because I think they're so nicely written, most of them, because they're written in the point of view of a woman. And there's Mm -hmm. a lot of a much softer tone, particularly when it comes to the characters of the men. And while they might be doing things like buying women, indentured servitude papers or um, stopping them from being highwaymen or whatever they're doing, um, Mm -hmm. there's a great sense of respect they have for women in these books. But of course, I saw this quote once that the only men I like are men written by women. And I stand by that. <laughs> but, but yeah, I find it so interesting because they, you read them for a light read and they are a great light read and they can be so funny because with romance novels you can make any plot you want around them. Another Mary Burkhardt book is about a sem- a half Japanese ninja and a psychosomatic paraplegic. Try and figure that one out. But there's romance from there.
2: Okay, Interesting. <laughs> yeah.
1: It's, it's great it's called the panther and the rose I, I it's my most expensive most amount of money i've ever spent in a romance novel because i read it and i had to buy it it cost me 20 euro no regrets um but they're such fun light reads but then there's such depth to them as well mm. which not that i'm saying that only a woman can do but um that you can tell a woman did these that being said yeah. one of a romance novels that I read quite a lot is Lee Greenwood. And I was very surprised to find out that Lee Greenwood, who wrote the Seven Brides books, was a man. And he writes a lot of these sort of cowboy romance novels. And I thought that was so interesting because this book reads... It, re- it reads so well. It reads like it's a romance novel. There's a lot of respect for the female leads. There's a lot of respect for the male leads towards their female leads. And mm. it's just such an interesting idea that a man wrote this and i compare that to books by the man i can't remember his name and the guy that wrote the last song and the notebook he does romance novels well but they read very differently i think compared to these ones
2: yeah i i I know exactly what you mean and there is a kind of a a recurring trope particularly on twitter of the idea of the woman female character written by a man and the uh, idea of you know um you know that she wakes up in the morning yawning with her breasts visible under, underneath her th- her thin nighties as she goes she breasts boobily down the stairs and <laughs> yes and then when she of course yes it's, it seems like this it, for some reason it's always important to mention
1: what uh, the, her breasts are yeah. like that's you know what there's a lot of boob talk in this book particularly oh, yeah. um but it's with great respect i will say as a girl with boobs but <laughs> um, mm-hmm. but that being said you can always tell these books are written by women if you read a smut scene and the woman's getting a lot of attention it's probably written mm-hmm. by a woman and that's something in these books I've noticed the women get a lot of attention the men get none
2: oh as in like the, as in the descriptions of the activities oh are, yes f- f- centered on female pleasure
1: oh yeah like it's mostly the men and there's absolutely no hesitation in it whatsoever that's their number one priority pleasure the woman first mm-hmm. um but you wouldn't get you wouldn't get that in a lot of books written by a man. I'm just saying, no
2: offense. <laughs> Great stuff. And it was before we wrap up. Has been? Is there? Um, do you think a person could who from internationally uh, who picked up a book, you know, a romance novel set in Ireland, might actually learn something about Ireland?
1: I think they'll learn about our disdain for oppressors and those, and I quote, damn Saxons, and hopefully our love for the colour green and the fact that we all we all either have hair, bright auburn-coloured hair, or raven hair. There's no brunettes, no blondes, there's none of that, and we all know how to sing, and we all have lilts in our voice, and we all have fiery tempers, but if a man attempts to kill another man for us, then we're probably going to enjoy that. <laughs>
2: Roche McNally, where can people find your work?
1: Um you can find me on TikTok at Roro underscore the underscore terrible, um so named after my icon, Ivan the Terrible, mm. also because I'm bad at everything. Um or you can find me at Twitter at roisin underscore McNally. Um but before we go, I have a fun list for you if you like oh, to Oh yes, of
2: course. I do Do absolutely do want that.
1: So, as I read these books, I like to collect what I call my APF, or Appropriate Places to Fornicate. So these are places that you are allowed to, according to these books, um, mm-hmm. do the Horizontal Monster Mash wherever you want, and I'll fire through it very quickly. But the first is a Scottish castle. Always good to know. Oh yes. Um, the second is the Abandoned Childhood Home of Your Father. That is from Midnight Heat. <laughs> <laughs> number three is a meadow oh so romantic um, number four it's very specific it is the top of a Mayan temple specifically on the block they did the human sacrifices why um, and the quote in the book was they were offering up their love of as a sacrifice instead <laughs> oh it was a weird one and um, that was oh which one was that I think that something midnight or ecstasy I can't remember Number five is a perfect replica of a Japanese wushitsu built into an English manor house. Number six, a merchant ship. Number seven, a pirate ship. No famine ships. For some reason, that's hmm. a bit too far.
2: Yeah, uh, that, is, that would be too far, but a pirate ship would be
0: fun.
1: Pirate ship's fun. That happened in a book where a woman time-traveled on the back of a dolphin. <laughs> <laughs> it was from 1988.
2: Um, if, if dolphins can time-travel, is that where fungi's gone?
1: Fungi's gone, he's taken women to pirate ships in the Caribbean of the 18th century. He's away mm. now. Now we have Wally the Walrus. He can't time travel. He can only see to the future and Wally tell us our is, demise.
2: Wally is such a, such a rebound. Like, no. That's never. It'll never be the same as our beloved dolphin.
1: R.I.P. <laughs> R.I.P. Fungi. Someone write a romance novel about him.
2: <laughs> is there anything else on this list?
1: There's also um, the back of a, those old wooden caravans. Um... 9 is against a hay bale, really good this time of year, they're baying the hail. 10 is beside a pond. 11, the jungles of Mexico. 12, the jungles of the Congo. 13, a seedy 18th century Mexican inn. 14 and 15 are cabins in the snow and the woods. 16 is a hot springs. 17, along a Native American's wall. A teepee. Libraries. A tent made out of animal pelts, a cottage, and to end, in the spare room of the Duke that wants to turn you into the King's mistress.
2: (laughs) You know, I've crossed off maybe three of those.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's why I'm not allowed back in the jungles of Mexico myself.
2: (laughs) Roisin, thank you so much. That is fantastic. Until the next time, it's a salon from me.
1: And a salon from me.
2: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Mother Folklore and thank you to Roisin McNally for being such a brilliant guest. Again, do check her out on TikTok. Mother Folklore will continue to come out on Fridays until we wrap up. Thanks very much to Brian for producing. Thank you very much to Kirsten Scheel for doing our artwork. Thank you to the Backroom Team of Headstuff for keeping the show going. We record the podcast on remotely.fm we recommend that if you are thinking of making a podcast yourself that this is an excellent app to use we've tried others this is our favourite one and you can use the link in our show notes if you want to check that out more until the next time slunk of all this has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network
1: Well, what else is there to do in (laughs) Ballymena
0: and let me just conclude by saying What the fuck did I just read?